Good morning. John chapter 1, verse 1. Turn there, page 886 in the Pew Bible. Most of you know that I'm a reader. I haven't always been much of a reader of fiction. I've repented of that silliness recently and I'm seeking to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And this year I committed to read through some of the great classics of, of literature. And I ended up reading some of the great opening lines of literature this year. It's difficult to write a book. It's difficult to grasp that, to, to write that perfect opening line that just prepares and captures and gets ready for everything that is to come. Some people nail it. I mentioned a few months ago that I had read Moby Dick. All right, everybody knows, call me Ishmael. This is a classic, simple opening line. I also read this one this year. It is a trust, a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Anybody? Pride and Prejudice, English teacher here. English teacher's got it. Uh, how about, I this one's a little more difficult. It was a bright, cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. Nobody. 1984. Excellent. Here's an easy one. You don't know about me without you have read a book by the name of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, but that ain't no matter. I love that one. That's Huckleberry Finn, uh, Mark, Mark Twain. My favorite, I think maybe my favorite book this year, favorite fiction book this year was this one. Whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life or whether that station will be held by anybody else, these pages must show. To begin my life, with the beginning of my life, I was born. David Copperfield. Nicole gets 100%. I can hear Henry screaming at the computer. He loves David Copperfield. Henry knew that one as well. Uh, David Copperfield begins. Oh, she got a prize. She got candy. Good work, Aloy. Teachers helping teachers. I love it. David Copperfield begins with the beginning of my life. He begins with the beginning. And thus this morning, we begin with the beginning in the greatest opening line ever penned. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This short and seemingly simple sentence is maybe the most compact and profound theological statement in the whole of Scripture, maybe the greatest sentence ever penned, maybe the most significant line ever penned, and I have been in agony over how to sufficiently begin this sermon and this new series on the Gospel of John. I, I had to give up. It cannot be done. I cannot do this line justice. We will spend 50 minutes on this line and we will have barely begun. But we must begin somewhere. We are transitioning from part two of our series in Genesis on the life of Abraham now to a new series in the Gospel of John. We preach verse by verse here through books of the Bible uh, because we believe that the Bible is God's Word. It's living and active. And so we open it up. My job is to expose you to that Word and we believe that God works through that Word. So we preach through books of the Bible. We try to alternate between Old and New Testament. And then we try to kind of rotate through all the different genres of scripture. And seven and a half years ago, when I began here, I began with a series on Mark, which also begins with the beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so now, seven and a half years later, it's finally time to return to another gospel, the fourth gospel, John's gospel. How, 
How do I give you the background information? How do we do run through what we need to run through here without boring you? That's a good question. Let me try to be brief. Uh, this is John's gospel, though if you read it from beginning to end, you will not find John's name a single time in it. Technically, this gospel is anonymous. Turn to the very end of the gospel. Let's start at the end. A very good place to start also. Look at chapter 21. John 21, verses 24 through 25. There we read in closing. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Uh, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And I, I love that line. And that last line is a helpful complement to our opening line because that line too is telling us the beginning and at the end that Jesus is so much bigger and so much more beautiful, more grand, more glorious than we can begin to imagine. And so we're already starting to get some hints as to what this book is about. But we came to the end for verse 24. Here's our author. This is the disciple bearing witness. The disciple, if you look up in verse 20, who is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And now we know from other gospels that Jesus' three closest disciples were Peter, James, and John. We know this disciple is not Peter because Peter is there in chapter 21 as well. And we know that James was martyred so early that this couldn't have been James. And plus, as I mentioned, John, the remaining of the closest three disciples is not mentioned by name in this whole book, probably because he is the author of this book. And this has been what the church has universally recognized from the beginning. The apostle John is writing this gospel, a man named Irenaeus in the second century was a disciple of a man named Polycarp, who himself knew the apostle John. That's pretty cool. Studying under a guy who studied under John. That would be neat. And Irenaeus writes 1800 years ago, then John, the disciple of the Lord, who had ever even rested on his breast right at the Lord's Supper, he himself also gave forth the gospel while he was living at Ephesus in Asia. So from the beginning, John's name has been attached to this technically anonymous gospel. Though many critical scholars uh, would deny that today, they make no compelling arguments. We're not going to waste our time with their arguments. So we're going to stick with the testimony of church history and the internal testimony that this is John the Apostle. When did he write this letter, this book? Good question. There's, there's a range of dates from 60 to 90, basically. All kinds of arguments that, again, we're not going to spend our time on. Traditionally, the book has been understood to have been written somewhere around the year 90 A.D. This is the second to last book of the New Testament written before Revelation, which John also writes. So John, probably around 90, but not that important. The important question, though, is why did John write this gospel? Well, flip back to chapter 20. Look at chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. John is very helpful. He is a very clear writer. He spells out his purpose for us. There can be no question what this gospel is about and what it is for. John 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote this book. The question with which the whole of the gospel is laser focused on answering is quite simply, who is this Jesus? John writes to tell us he is the Christ, the son of God. And John writes to tell us how we are to respond to that reality altering truth, belief. And John writes to tell the result of our responding to that reality altering truth, life. And so John's purpose here is openly evangelistic. He has written to us a gospel, a euangelion. Gospel just means good news. He has written to proclaim to us the good news of Jesus Christ and the life that is found in him. And so this is the perfect study to begin as we are as a church increasingly aware of our weaknesses evangelistically and increasingly desirous to grow in this area. The world is falling apart. People are dying. This gospel of Jesus is the good news of life in Jesus. Nothing else will ultimately matter. Nothing else will ultimately help anyone. We can make all the political and social and economic changes. But without this, without Christ and the life that is found only in him, it will all ultimately and eternally amount to nothing. But let's not make the mistake then of thinking that John is only for non-Christians. No, it is very much for every single one of us. This life that Jesus offers, this eternal life begins now. And our experience of that life in the here and now and our growth in that life in the here and now is determined by our knowledge of and our love for Jesus. And so my prayer is that as we look long and hard at Jesus this next year or two, probably, that God will expand our understanding of Jesus and expand our love for Jesus and then will so shape us into his very image. Because this opening verse and this opening prologue overall are here to show us that Jesus, again, is so much bigger and better and more beautiful than we think. You think that you know Jesus. You think that you understand the gospel of John. I thought that I understood the gospel of John. But the more that I read and study the gospel of John, the more I am aware of how little I know and understand. That is why we could all use a long look at this book and a long look at the subject of this book, Jesus Christ. William Hendrickson begins his commentary on John with this opening line. The gospel, according to John, is the most amazing book that was ever written, period. Amen. Luther used to say that if a a political tyrant got rid of 64 books of the Bible, but we were left with Romans and John, then the whole of Christianity would be saved because we have everything in John and in Romans. That's what we get to study for the next year. The most amazing book ever written. I'm excited about this. I hope that you are too. There's more to say, but let's dive in and we'll work some of the opening stuff in as we start to walk uh, through the first verse. I actually want to read the first 18 verses of John. This is called the prologue. I'll explain that because these first 18 verses set the stage for everything else that is to follow. But we're only going to get into verse 1 this morning. Who is Jesus? First, we are going to learn that he is the word. What does that mean? Four things. We're going to see that the word is eternal. 
we're going to see that the word is revelational, and then we're going to see that the word is relational. And if this word is eternal, revelational, and relational, we're going to see that this word then is himself God. That's how John starts. He wants to affirm as clearly as he can that this Jesus whom we have seen is God himself. Who is Jesus? Let's read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace Upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. If you would bow with me and let's let's begin with a word of prayer. Oh gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who speaks. You are the God who reveals Himself. Father, you reveal yourself ultimately through this word, your word, your son, Jesus Christ. And you reveal that word to us uh, through these words written. Father, these words that are eternal life. Father, as we come to these eternally important words, we ask that you would help us. We ask that your spirit uh, would help both the preaching and the hearing of your word. I pray that I would be clear. I pray that your word would be compelling. Father, I pray that you would give us, all of us, eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that you would show us your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we think that we know him. Uh, We think uh, that we have understood him. Father, show us how good he is and how glorious he is. Uh, Father, enlarge our vision Sunday by Sunday as we walk through this book. Uh, We pray that you would use this, Father, to show us Christ and to grow us in Christ and to give us a love for Christ that rules our entire lives. Father, please now work through your word that reveals to us uh, this word. Father, help us now, we ask and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Point number one, uh, the word is eternal. We're going to unpack the meaning of this word, word, in point number two. But let's start first with the win of the word. Let's start first with the eternality of the word. Again, John is a wonderful writer. One of the beauties of this book is that John actually writes with great clarity and simplicity, but he does so about truths of great depth 
and complexity. It shows up in the English, but even more so in the Greek. Grammatically and stylistically, John is very simple. And the brilliance of the book is this beautiful simplicity that is revealing to us the most profound complexity. Look at how he starts. It's so simple. In the beginning. This is intentional, and this is brilliant. John is drawing his readers right in. He's especially drawing his original Jewish readers right in because he takes what would have been one of the most known and beloved lines from their scriptures. He takes it and then he tweaks it ever so slightly in the beginning. And their brains and our brains naturally um, jump to what John is deliberately referencing in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. But where we would have expected God, John surprises us. John catches us off guard. In the beginning was the Word. Wait a second, right? that, that's not what we would have expected. That's good writing. Now we're paying attention. Now we're asking questions. Why did he not say God? Why did he say the Word? What's going on here? In the beginning. In RK, in the Greek. Clearly a reference to Genesis 1-1, but as we mentioned, maybe somewhat subtly, a reference to Mark 1-1 as well, because Mark begins the same way. RK, in the beginning, or just the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So John, Mark would have been written, I don't know, 30 years or so before John. John could be saying in part, hey, Mark has already told you about the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. I want to show you how this gospel, this good news, goes back way even before that to the absolute beginning, the RK of all things. And so as David Copperfield begins with his birth, Matthew and Luke begin with Jesus' birth, Mark begins with the birth of Jesus' ministry, John begins before all of that, before the beginning, before time itself at the beginning before the beginning began notice the grammar the word already was and so right away john is beginning to make his case for the deity of jesus and he starts with the eternality of jesus as we read you may have noticed that jesus wasn't actually named we know it's jesus but were you to be reading this for the first time jesus isn't named until verse 17 John is building up towards that. He's starting with all these these grand, profound truths. He's starting with this word and then light and then life, incarnation, salvation. And he says, all of that, Jesus. This Jesus, who is the word, is eternal. And this is important because there have been many, and there are many today, who would deny this. Who would deny the eternality of the word and thus the deity of Jesus. We're going to talk more specifically about our Jehovah's Witnesses neighbors next week when we look at verse 3. But their denial of the deity of Jesus is nothing new. They're just the most recent iteration of of what has been referred to as Arianism. Not with a Y, uh, but an I. Arianism. Uh, One of the first and foremost uh, of ancient heresies. We're going to look at that in detail next week. But kind of the, the forefather of all this, a man named Arius was famous for saying, there was once when he was not. There was once when he was not. And so kind of blew up the first great controversy in church history as Arius taught um, that there was a time when Jesus was not. 
John here is specifically saying there is not once when he was not. In the beginning was the word. The word was before the beginning. The word was before time itself. And as we'll see next week, time itself actually originates in and is created by this word. And so we'll see Jesus pray in John in chapter 17, verse five. He'll say, and now, father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jude 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. 2 Timothy 1.9 talks about God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Or literally, the Greek says, before times eternal. Ephesians 1.4, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Scripture, scripture is clear that there was a time before time. And our time-bound, finite brains are stretched to their limit here. How can there be a before if there is no time? What is before time? Well, Scripture tells us God was. God is. And John 1.1 tells us that the Word was. The Word is. He was in the beginning. He was before the beginning. He was the beginning. And so this Word is eternal. What does that mean? Oh, Good question. Minds far greater than mine have struggled to explain uh, eternality and eternity. Uh, John Owen, one of the greatest minds uh, to ever have lived, John Owen writes, how inconceivable is this glorious divine property? If, if John Owen says something is inconceivable, it's inconceivable. How inconceivable is this glorious divine property unto the thoughts and minds of men? How weak are the ways and terms whereby they go about to express it? He that says most only signifies what he knows of what it is not. We are of yesterday, we change every moment, and we are leaving our station tomorrow. God is still the same. Was so before the world was from eternity. And now I cannot think what I have said, but only have intimated what I adore. Oh, he ends up giving up. Even in saying how little he can say, Owen actually says something profound. Notice the contrast he makes. He's talking about eternality, and he says, we change every moment, but God is still the same. God doesn't change. We call this the immutability of God. Right? God does not change. And the eternality of God flows from this immutable uh, immutability of God. Because he is immutable, he must also be eternal. Think about it. Since God is the absolutely perfect being, I love this stuff, absolutely perfect being, any change would necessarily then be either changed for the better, meaning that prior to that, God previously was not perfect, or it would have to be changed for the worst, meaning that God is now no longer perfect. And so God, the perfect being, must be unchangeable. He must be immutable. We change our great hope is that he stays the same. And since God does not change, God must be eternal. He must be timeless. He must be unbound. Uh, so Gerhardus Voss defines eternity. This is good. Catch this. 
This is the, it's that attribute of God whereby he is exalted above all limitations of time and all succession of time. All right, so not bound by time, outside of time, but hear this part. And in a single indivisible present possesses the content of his life perfectly. Let me, let me try to unpack that. Eternal means above time, outside time, before time, originator of time. And thus, it also then means the perfect possession of life at all times. Bear with me. This is getting complicated. I'm the anti-John. Um, but this is brilliant. Uh, Boethius, another theologian, 1,500 years ago, defines God eternity like this. He says eternity as the whole simultaneous and perfect possession of boundless life. The simultaneous Perfect possession of boundless, overflowing, infinite life. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. John 1, 4, in him was life. Is your head spinning yet? If we knew exactly what eternity is, we would be eternal. We are not. God is. The word is. Psalm 90, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God has no beginning. God has no end. God does not change. He does not progress. He does not advance. He is. And so God reveals his name to Moses in Exodus 3, 14 as Yahweh. I am who I am. And that name is, is some form of the verb to be. God simply says, I am. And that will be important in this gospel as Jesus goes on to claim that very name for himself. He simply is. God is existence itself. God is eternal. This word too is eternal. There was never a time when he was not in the beginning, before the beginning, this word already was. And that's what's going to make verse 14 so amazing. The most important thing that has ever happened. Verse 1, the word was. Verse 14, the word became. The word was, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. And that's where we're going. That's what John is so excited about. This thing, this, this person, this word that our words utterly fail to describe, this word that always was, this word that was outside of time, Became. He entered into time and we have seen him. He was revealed to us. And so point number two, we see that this word is revelational. We haven't yet defined the word word. Why does John call Jesus the word? By the way, John's the only one who does this. John's the only one who uses this title. And it only shows up here in verse 1. In verse 14, which we just read, in 1 John 1, 1, which we read earlier, and then we're actually coming to the last one in Bible study in Revelation 19, verse 13. Right? Those are the only four spots in which Jesus is called the Word. So this, this designation of Jesus is unique to John, and it is uniquely revealing. A little more brief background. I've tried to seed it in to give you a break. How do we break down this book? How's this book structured? How does John organize his work and how does that organization and structure help him to reveal to us this Jesus in whom we are to find life? Well, there are many different ways scholars break down the book. We're going to go with the simplest one. We haven't yet talked about one of John's most important words. 
Back in John's purpose statement in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, if you want to look there again, he writes in verse 31 that these things, that these are written that you may believe. What are written? The previous verse. Jesus did many other signs. See, John never talks about the miracles of Jesus. And John leaves most of them out. But he gets right to the point and he calls these the signs of Jesus, uh, getting, uh, showing us what these are really about and what they're really for. And so he specifically records, most will argue, and we'll look at this, most will argue that John is specifically giving us seven signs for the purpose of revealing who Jesus is to us. And if you've been in the Bible study for Revelation, that makes sense to you. John loves the number seven. So here's seven signs. And so at its most simplest, what we're going to see John do is give these Seven signs, uh, then there's going to be discourses and teachings related to each of those signs. Those are two of the primary ways that Jesus has revealed to us, signs and teachings. But that then leaves us the primary way that John reveals Jesus to us, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus, the sign. And so it's simplest to organize the book according to these signs. There are two main parts of the book, if you want to get technical, four basic parts. We just read part one. We'll be in part one for a while, though it's only 18 verses. This is the prologue to John. Do you catch our word in there? Uh, prologue is literally a before word. These first 18 verses are like an overture. An overture and a work of music, Jane's classing up the place here. She's got me thinking in classical music terms, right? The, the overture is the opening to a piece of music. And in the overture, you'll find kind of all of these themes and you'll hear all of these things that when you go on to listen to the rest of the piece, you'll say, oh, wait, I've already heard that. Oh, wait, that was in the beginning. And so it's giving you a taste of everything that is going to come. That's what John is doing here. John is setting the table. He is preparing us for what's to come. He talks about the word, the life, the light, darkness, incarnation, revelation. That's the prologue. It's short, but it's critically important. So the main part of the book, if you want to call it just two parts, part one, but if we're breaking it down into four, part two of the book is generally understood to be the rest of chapter one through chapter 12. The rest of one through chapter 12, and this is the book of signs. The book of these seven signs. This is Jesus' public ministry. Part three of the book, or the second main part of the book then, is chapters 13 through 20, which shifts to focus on Jesus' private ministry to his apostles, building up to the sign, his death and resurrection. And that's then followed by the epilogue, the after word of chapter 21. That's the gospel of John. Most simply, it's two main parts, the book of signs and then the book of the sign with an opening and a close. That's John. And John tells us that the purpose of these signs is to reveal Jesus to us. And so John opens this whole revelation of Jesus by calling him the word, because that's what words do. Words reveal. Logos, L-O-G-O-S, is the word translated word here. And it is such a loaded word. John's use of this word is not accidental or incidental. It was such a big word used so widely back then that countless 
Pages and books have been written about it and never-ending suggestions have been put forward as to what John means in using this loaded term. I wanted to do a whole sermon just on the Greek background of the term logos, but I, I spared you because I love you. Because this was a term that was already very much in use at that time. The logos was one of the most central concepts in Greek philosophy. Back 500 years before Jesus, there was a man named Heraclitus. The Greeks were at least trying to understand uh, the world and, and life within that world. A few are doing that today. So let's give the Greeks some credit. Media and social media have ruined us all for actual sustained thinking or for even caring to do so. The Greeks at least tried. Heraclitus looked around and he noticed that one of the main things that you cannot miss about reality is that everything is always constantly changing. And he said that life and reality is change. It is movement. And he was famous for saying, you'd never step twice in the same river. And that was his example of, of life and reality, correct? Because it's always flowing and it's always changing. And so then he thinks and he notices, again, this is 2,500 years ago. Give him, give him some credit. He noticed, though, since fire is constantly flux and change and movement, right? How fun is it just to watch a fire dance and move and constantly uh, change? Heraclitus proposed that fire is the matter, it is the one material that makes up the whole of, of the universe. Everything is in some way made of fire. But if that is true, if reality is constant change, he then argued and wondered, wait, well then what holds it all together? How can there be any sort of order and structure in this thing that is constantly fluxing and changing? And Heraclitus argued that it was the logos that held it all together. He writes in the opening of one of his books, Although this logos is eternally valid, yet men are unable to understand it, not only before hearing it, but even after they have heard it for the first time. Though all things come to pass in accordance with this logos, men seem to be quite uh, without any experience of it. So notice that he calls the logos eternal, and then he says that all things come to pass in accordance with this logos. And from this point forward, uh, Greek thought would just be fascinated by this concept of logos. So for the Greeks, the, the logos was basically like, it was the principle that held everything together. Or it was just the logic, logos, logic. It was the divine logic. It's the order of the purpose behind everything. How does it all hold together? Logos. So they understood it to be this, this kind of rational principle of reason by which all things exist and are ordered. And for the Stoics, there was no personal God, there was just Logos. And all that exists springs from this Logos. Not a person so much as a principle governing the universe. Again, it's taking me great restraint to not give you a whole lot more of this. It's fascinating to trace and track this Logos doctrine throughout Greek philosophy. There was then a famous Jewish philosopher in Alexandria in Egypt named Philo, who lived during the time of Christ but gives no evidence of having been familiar with Christ or Paul or Christianity in any way. But he writes some fascinating things about the Logos. He attempts to combine the thought of Plato with the Hebrew scriptures. It ends up being ultimately incoherent and inconsistent, but there are lines here and there that make you want to think he's getting there. For example, he writes, the Logos of the living God is the bond of everything holding all things together and binding all the parts, and it prevents them from being dissolved and separated. So Logos sustains everything. 
In his writings on the commentaries on the Hebrew scriptures, he at times refers to the Logos as the second God, as the name of God. He refers to the Logos as the angel of the Lord. He calls the Logos high priest. He calls the Logos a mediator. And it's really easy to want to jump to conclusions and make these connections that probably aren't there. But we need to be careful. Yes, this word, Logos, is just a loaded concept in Greek philosophy when John is writing. But why do we jump to the conclusion and assume that John is primarily thinking in terms of Greek philosophy? If you've come to our Thursday night study of Revelation at all, you've probably kept up, it's again a book that John himself wrote, you've probably heard the first and most important principle of interpretation when it comes to that book. It's that you have to keep in mind that Revelation is just chock full of the Old Testament. You cannot understand John's writing without the Old Testament. It just bleeds Old Testament. It's clearly the background in Revelation from which he is working. Well, why not then here as well? Why not the same in his gospel? And he's already indicated this for us, that this is what he's doing in how he begins in the beginning. Right? Genesis 1.1. So he's already signaled for us that he's writing within the world of the Old Testament. And so we should predominantly understand his use of logos in that world as well. So the best background for understanding what John intends with this word is not Greek thought, but Hebrew thought. We know he's in Genesis 1. And there, the word Dabar in Genesis 1 throughout the chapter is the means through which God creates. And God said, let there be light, and there was. So there's word, and then there's was. God speaks, and it is so. And so we read in Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. And the Septuagint, remember the Septuagint's the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. This is translated about 200 years before John is writing. The Greek translation of Psalm 33.6 reads, By the logos of the word, the heavens were made. And anyway, we're going to look at this in great detail next week when we get to verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we're going to see there that the word is the creator. And so as we go back and you read the scriptures, God's word in the Old Testament is his, his powerful self-expression in creation and revelation and, and salvation. And then as you progress through the scriptures, that word is intimately connected with God. At times it's almost it's identified with God. The word is even increasingly personified as you progress through the scriptures. We saw it even in Genesis 15.1, not too long ago. We saw the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. That's kind of strange if you think about it. Right? You usually see visions, you usually hear words. But here the word comes in a vision. In Jeremiah 1.4, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. There's the word kind of speaking, almost personified. And, and there are a countless number of these throughout the Old Testament that we could look at. But, but the point is that God's word in the scriptures, is, it's powerful, it's living and active, it's more than just a word, it's increasingly alive, it's increasingly distinct, it's almost at times treated as if it was a person. And it is this that John is building upon. He, he has to be intentionally taking this Greek concept of the Logos, not to use it and affirm it, 
but to correct it, to warn others away from it, because he takes it and then does something with it that no one else had ever done before. He says, hey, this logos, it's not a principle. He says, it's a person. And it's not just a divine person, but a divine person made flesh in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So John takes their word, their concept and says, hey, that thing that you say is the most important thing, that that logos that is in and behind all these things and that hold all things together, that thing has come as a man and we've seen him. And so what John does here is absolutely Masterful. He takes that which is clearly rooted in Hebrew biblical thought, but presents it in such a way, not just to contextualize or connect to Greek thought, but to correct Greek thought, to redirect Greek thought, to point it to where all thought should ultimately be aimed. He says that Jesus is the reason. He is the logic. He's the purpose. He's the structure. He's the order. All of those, some of those Lagos quotes should have made you think of Hebrews 1.3. He's the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the one that gives meaning to this world and this life. And so life cannot then make any sense apart from this Jesus who is life. Life has no reason, no logic, no purpose, no structure or order apart from Jesus. He is the word. And as such, as a word, he reveals God to us. Look at the conclusion of the prologue in verse 18. This confirms that this is the main point of the word. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. If someone tells you they saw God, don't listen to them. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. See, Jesus, the word of God, the image of God, makes God known. He reveals God. And so later on in chapter 14, verse 9, he'll say to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. We just read part of Hebrews 1. Let me read verses 1 through 3 of Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son." whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's the word. He's the means through which God speaks to us. He's the means through which God creates us. He's the radiance. He's the shining, the the showing forth of God's glory. He's the exact imprint, stamp of his nature, and he even upholds the very universe. It sounds like the Logos, doesn't it? Because this Logos is a person. There must be someone who is holding it all together, right? Physicists can't come up with a theory of everything. They can't figure out how to get the large and the small forward and how they get it all together. They have two theories, but they don't work together. What we're seeing here is that Jesus is the theory of everything. He's the one that holds it all together. And he's a person. He's the word. And he reveals God to us. As we get to know one another through our words, right, we speak and we talk and we reveal our hearts and who we are and what we're about through what we say, through our words, in the same way. We get to know God through his word. Want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Want to hear God read about Jesus? 
One scholar writes, what Jesus did was to open a window in time that we may, might see the eternal and unchanging God and his love. Jesus is the revelational word. God expresses himself to us. He speaks to us. He reveals himself uh, through this word made flesh. So he reveals. Third point. We're going to save this one mostly for next week. Let me touch on it here and then we'll expound on it there. Three, the word is relational. Notice that this is repeated. Look at verses one and look at verse two. We get this twice. The word was with God. Verse two, he was in the beginning with God. Now, I wanted another point to come before this one, but we already don't have enough time for the points that we have. After revelational, I wanted to draw your attention to the word as personal. But we've already touched on that in point two, and we'll touch on it here as well. But much of Greek philosophy would have had no problem affirming that the Logos was eternal, even that the Logos was revelational. Uh, Philo said the same thing. Where John totally diverges from them and shocks the world is his claim that the Logos is personal. The Logos is a person. But I'm folding that into this point. Because if the word is personal, that also then means that the word is relational. And this point isn't often emphasized from John 1.1, but I think it's central and critical to what John is doing. That's why he says it twice. The word was with God. Was is a verbal connection that's establishing a relationship between word and God. So for the word to be with God, we know that the word has to be in some way distinct from God. The word is identified with God, but not identical to God, the Father. I've got to be careful here. And that's what I hope to do next week. I want to talk more specifically about the Trinity next week and look at kind of how this all works out. But for now, it's clear that we have some sort of relationship here. The word is with God. But the word with in the Greek is pretty interesting. Never thought prepositions could be interesting, but they are. They're very important because this is not the normal word for with. We're studying the Gospel of John, called the fourth gospel. It's called the fourth gospel, remember, because John is somewhat distinct from the other three. Right? So in Sunday school, we're studying Matthew, and we have at times read the passage in Matthew, and then read the same story in Mark and Luke. You cannot do that with John, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke go together. They share a lot of material. That's why we call those first three gospels the synoptic gospels. That word synoptic literally means to see with. They can be seen together. And that sin, S-Y-N, is the normal Greek preposition for with. See them with each other. That's not the word in John 1.1. Where you see with, it's actually a stranger Greek preposition, pros, P-R-O-S, which most literally means to or toward. And it often expresses movement or motion toward. And when this little preposition is linked to another person, it expresses the idea of movement or motion toward that person. In other words, disposition, orientation, relationship. And so some have even gone as far, I think this is a little too far, but some has gone as far to translate this as the word was face to face with God. Meaning that the word existed in the closest possible fellowship with the Father. We read 1 John 1 earlier. Pastor Mike read it for us. John is writing. Again, that's the same apostle John. 
I said that John's not mentioned in this letter. That was maybe confusing in this book. We just read John. That's John the Baptist. We'll get to him. This is John the Apostle. John the Apostle is never named um, in this letter. It's John the Apostle that is writing the gospel, and then he writes 1 John 1. And he, sell, he tells us in 1 John 1 that he's writing about what he has seen, the word, the life that was made manifest, that was revealed. He says, I'm testifying to him the eternal life which was with the Father. Why is he writing this? Why does he proclaim that? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, the goal of John's writing is, is fellowship. It's relationship. The very relationship of the Word with God. The Son with the Father. John's favorite designation of God in this book is Father. An intimate Relational term. John uses it so much more than the other Gospels. And it's a relational term, obviously. And this is what I want us to look at next week. In the beginning, the Word was with God. Before the beginning, the Word was an intimate communion, fellowship, relationship with God. So this God, our God, is inherently and intrinsically relational. Before creation, there was relation. And if that's the case then this is profoundly important. This changes everything. Because this then places relationship at the very center of reality. This places relationship as the origin and even the goal of reality. And so in the beginning, we are being let in on one of the great secrets of life. Life is fundamentally relational. The word is personal. That makes his world personal. The, world is, the word is relational. That makes his world Relational. Look down at verse 12 of chapter 1. Some have argued that this is the center of the prologue. I disagree with him, but it's, it's a compelling argument. Some argue that this is the goal, this is the center of what John's trying to say. This part at the end of verse 12, where he says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's relationship. Right? That's why Christ has come, to restore the relationship. If you remember, that's what we saw again and again and again in the Abraham story. We've gotten that, we get that story so wrong. God is not telling Abraham, hey, look, you're going to have a kid and I'll give you this nice little piece of land. No, he's telling Abraham what he's going to do to restore the relationship we ruined with our sin. The glorious, good, generous, relational God created us to be in fellowship with him. We rejected him. We wrecked and ruined the relationship. The story of the whole Bible then is what God was going to do to restore the relationship. And it all culminates and climaxes here with the word made flesh come to reveal himself to us and reveal God to us and to do it through these signs. But to do it ultimately through this son, uh, through the death of his son on his cross, fulfilling what John the Baptist announces in verse 29 of chapter 1. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, Jesus does that. He dies for us because the wages of sin is death. What we all owe for rejecting this God of life is death. Jesus, this word, comes to pay that death debt for us and comes to do it so that he can redeem us and restore us to relationship with God. Because listen, church, that is life. Right? He is life itself. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, 
the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, life is knowing God, not knowing about God. Some of you know about God, but knowing, knowing God, a relational knowing God, loving and being intimately in fellowship and communion with him. The word being with God from the beginning reveals to us much about the nature of reality itself and thus the nature of our life in that reality. Relationship is at the very center of that reality. It's what you were created for. Relationship with the God of life is the only place you will find life. And Jesus, the word, has come to make him known. And so the word is relational, on top of revelational, on top of eternal. And all of that means, point number four, that the word was God. That's what John is trying to do here. The word doesn't just reveal God. The word isn't just with God. The word himself is God. And John could not be more clear here. We'll look at the grammar next week. I know you're excited. It's more Greek grammar. We'll, we'll look at the grammar next week briefly as we look at the word as the creator, as further evidence of the divinity of Jesus. You know, this is a favorite verse of our Jehovah's Witnesses friends. If you try to engage them with John 1.1, you will lose um, because this is the verse that they go to and that they use incorrectly. But I want to walk through it real quick and show you what they're doing and why and how they're wrong. Because John is just flat out stating his premise in the opening line of his argument. Let me be clear. Let me tell you why I'm writing the case that I'm trying to make. Uh, Jesus is God. And that's the argument he's going to unpack in the rest of the book. This word who is light and life, who gives light and life, who became flesh and dwelt among us, who we have seen, who brings grace and truth, who makes God known, who is Jesus Christ. He himself is God. Not a God, not God-like God. You see, the fundamental claim at the very heart of the gospel is that it was God himself, the word, the son who took on flesh and came to live and die and rise again to restore his people to relationship with him. And so this greatest of books ever written opens with the first line with the declaration of the deity of Christ. The word was God. And then for the rest of the book, the story builds. Jesus reveals. The apostles start to understand. And then Thomas bursts forth in the climax of the book, declaring in chapter 20, verse 28, right before the purpose statement, my Lord and my God. Because that is the purpose of the book. Jesus is the purpose of the book. Jesus as God become man to rescue man and then to restore him to relationship with God. The relational God created his people for a relationship with him. We wrecked it with our sin. And what he is doing throughout scripture and throughout history is working to restore the relationship with his people. That's what you were made for. That's what you need. All the stuff that you're obsessed with and caught up with, all the world's falling apart, and this is happening, this is happening, all this is it's terrible, it's awful. We're so distracted by silly things. This is eternal reality. Apart from this, everyone dies. Apart from Christ. Everyone dies eternally and spends an eternity in hell. John says, we've seen life. We've seen God himself who came to restore us to life. And so our message and our purpose and our goal here as a church is for people to know this. John says, I, I've written this that you may know this Jesus, which 17.3 is eternal life. I've written this that you may believe and that in believing you may have life in his name. That's life. There is, that, that means if God is life and we only know him through Jesus, that means there is no life. 
apart from Christ. Everyone else is in death. We can work and we need to help them and we need to love our neighbors and do all these things and, and seek their temporal good. Yes, of course, but those people are still dead if we don't get them the gospel. We leave them in their death. It's Christ who comes to give life. And so what a privilege we have here. For the next year plus, we get to study and stare at this Jesus. We get to look deeply at this book that exists to reveal the one to us who reveals God to us, who is himself God with us. Jesus is God. And as Luther says, everything depends on this doctrine. Jesus is God. And if that is the case, then there is nothing more important that has ever happened than this. God has come in Jesus. And there's nothing more important than that you must know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that it is only in believing in him that you may have life in his name. Let's stop there. Let's pray. Let's ask God to bless this series. Let's God, ask God to use this series to reveal himself through Christ to us and then to grow us in our knowledge of him and our love for him. Let's, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, you are life. You have sent to us the word who is life. You have sent to us the word who speaks to us the words of eternal life. Father, help us to believe that there is no life apart from him. Father, help us to believe that all of our, our misery, Father, all of our struggles and fears are when we forget that you are the center of reality. And that the goal and the purpose of our lives is, is relationship and, and fellowship with you. And that, Father, you are mediating, ministering that relationship and fellowship through your word and, and through your people and ultimately through your son, uh, Jesus Christ. So, Father, forgive us for how fixed we are on other things. Forgive us for how obsessed and concerned we are with the things of the world. Father, I pray that you would use this word and use this series to fix our eyes where they belong, where you command us to put them, uh, not on the things of the earth, but on things above, but on Jesus Christ, uh, who has gone before us, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Uh, Father, give us a great love for Jesus. Forgive us for how cold and cool and often apathetic we are about the things of God. Forgive us for how prone we are uh, to speak so joyfully and easily of the things of the world, and yet how much we struggle to enjoy and speak of the things of God. Father, use this series uh, to transform me, uh, to transform my family, my church family. Uh, Father, to, to show us what life and reality is about, to show us the logos, the very meaning and reason and logic and purpose the, uh, uh, that, that holds reality together, that is existence itself, is Jesus Christ. And Father, that discipleship is to orient ourselves around him, to know him and to love him and to live in light of him and to live for him. And Father, we want to live in a way that you would use us to bring other people to this Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, there is no hope in this world. And that has been so clear this year. Help us to not put hope in the world, but to increasingly put hope in your word and in your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, use this series, Father, as we have sung simply to show us Christ. And we ask and we pray this in his name. Amen.